Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that you are our good and gracious King. We thank you, Lord, that you are all-sufficient um, in and of yourself, that you lack nothing and you need nothing, Lord. Uh, and we can be grateful for that because you are not looking to us to fill up something in you that is lacking. Uh, Lord, we could never do that. You are the infinite God. If you lack something, us finite creatures could never meet that need. Lord, you lack for nothing. Um, and that's good news for us because we lack so much. Uh, but when we come to you, we find the one who fills us through and through, who satisfies us, the one in whom we are content, the one in whom when we do feel our lack, we can run to you and, and be filled up by you in all that you are, Lord, worshiping you for who you are and what you've done for us through your Son and what you are going to do for us yet in the future to come. So we thank you that you are that kind of God and we pray that you would help us to know you better so that we can worship you for who you are and, and let others know who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's turn on our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We looked at the first 11 verses last week. This week we're looking at verses 12 through 19. And as you turn there, I'll read that to us. 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 12. Paul says, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Tomorrow will be the 505th anniversary of the day that Martin Luther's 95 theses were nailed to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany. That day was October 31st, 1517. So tomorrow it's not only Halloween, it is more importantly for us, Reformation Day. In that document entitled the 95 Theses, Martin Luther, in each of those 95 statements, he was criticizing some of the practices of the Roman Catholic Church. And when he had that document nailed to that door, it was not his intention, but that little event ended up lighting a firestorm of controversy out of which the Reformation would come into full swing. And one of the pivotal doctrines that had been lost by the Roman Catholic Church and that would be recovered in the Protestant Reformation was the doctrine of justification. That doctrine is the biblical teaching that a believer is justified by grace alone, 
through faith alone in Christ alone. That doctrine from the scriptures tells us that men and women cannot save themselves by their good works. Instead, men and women must look to the work that Jesus has done on their behalf. It is only in trusting in Christ that God will declare a man or a woman righteous and receive them into heaven. Martin Luther said that the doctrine of justification by faith was a doctrine upon which the church would stand or fall. If it is not true that God declares men and women righteous by faith alone, then no one can be saved. No one can be justified. There can be no church. There can be no assembly of redeemed people because there will be no redeemed people. We cannot redeem ourselves because we are not righteous. We need someone who can stand in our place, someone whose righteousness can be credited to our account. We need an alien righteousness to be credited to our account because we don't have any righteousness in and of ourselves. When we come to 1 Corinthians 15, in this chapter we discover that there is another doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. The doctrine of justification is not the only such doctrine. There's also the doctrine of the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, then the church has no reason for existence. When we read verse 12, we saw that there were some in this congregation who had begun to deny the resurrection of the dead. And it's clear from the lengths that Paul is going to uh, to address this issue in that congregation that the Corinthians did not understand how big of a deal that really was. They were not connecting the dots. They didn't understand the implications of that kind of teaching cropping up in the church. They didn't know that this teaching, that there is no resurrection of the dead, they didn't know that that would be fatal to their faith. And we're going to see today just how important the doctrine of the resurrection is to our lives as believers. So first, let's take a little closer look at verse 12. In verse 12, we see what the issue is, why Paul is writing this chapter, why he's bringing this up. He says in verse 12, Now if Christ is preached that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Paul here in this verse expresses a degree of shock. If he had clearly preached to them the resurrection of Christ, and if they had accepted what he preached to them as the truth, that is, if they had responded in faith, believing that Jesus was alive from the dead, how in the world is it the case that some among them now are denying the resurrection in general? Paul says, how is this happening? How does this have a place in your congregation, seeing as what the truth that you are standing upon is, as he outlined in verse, the first 11 verses, how is it that this can exist in your congregation? That's what he's asking in this verse. He's going to help them in this passage to connect the dots. He's going to help them understand the implications of this false teaching. There's this wrong theology that has 
somehow found a home in that congregation, and Paul is going to take time to deconstruct that wrong theology. He's going to break it apart, let them see what the innards are, so that they can understand that this is a deadly thing. This is not something to allow in their midst. They cannot, on one hand, believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and at the same time, believe, on the other hand, that the dead are not raised. Paul's going to show them why they cannot believe both things at the same time. Before we get to how exactly he shows them why they cannot believe both things at the same time, I just want to go on a slight tangent off jumping off of this verse to apply something that is implied here, but that's not the main point here. I think that we see in this passage one of the reasons why it's so important that we as believers be in community with one another, that we not live in isolation from each other, why it's so important that we are committed to a local church, why we need to show up when our brothers and sisters in Christ are gathering together. I pointed out last week as we were going through the first 11 verses that we inevitably, over time, accumulate little errors in our thinking, little untruths in our theology and in our beliefs, just because of the world that we live in that is constantly bombarding us with lies. The Corinthians were experiencing this. It was their worldview coming out of a Greek way of thinking that there was no resurrection of the dead. That had no place in a biblical worldview, but it was the worldview that they were saved out of, and yet it was still finding a home in their thinking. If we are not in community with other believers, we lose the benefit of having brothers and sisters in Christ who can point out our errors to us. If we isolate ourselves from the local church, those errors can become entrenched in our hearts and they can grow and lead to other errors. Now we've seen that these Corinthians had a lot of problems. That's to put it mildly. They had a lot of problems. But at least, at least they were still gathering together as believers. Their dysfunction had not yet grown to the point to where they had given up gathering together. They were not that dysfunctional. They still came together. And because they were still coming together, they were putting themselves in the position to receive correction when they went astray. Do we do that? Are we putting ourselves, before we look down our noses at the Corinthians, are we at least taking that measure as believers? Are we coming together? When we willingly refuse to gather with our brothers and sisters in Christ, we cut ourselves off from that life-giving correction. Error is like an infection. And what happens to someone who gets a little cut on their finger and that cut gets infected, but they decide to not go to the doctor? Eventually it grows and turns septic and puts their lives in danger. Well, that's what we do when we cut ourselves off from the life of the church. So this is an issue facing these Corinthians. There are some among them who are denying the resurrection of the dead, but by God's grace, they are in a position to receive correction. 
This letter would be written to, or would be read to the whole congregation, and they would listen, and they would hear, and they would understand what's at stake with this false teaching that's entered into their midst. But to correct them, Paul is going to show these believers the implications of such false teaching. And that brings us to verses 13 to 18. He's going to show them the implications of this false teaching. He's going to show them what is at stake in getting the doctrine of the resurrection wrong. In verses 1 through 11, Paul took them back to the foundation structure of the gospel. He reminded them of the only message that could save their souls, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. That was the truth that Paul had preached to them. That was the truth that they had believed, and that was the truth by which they were being saved. And the Corinthians do not seem to realize that the resurrection deniers in their midst are tampering with that message. They're fiddling with the inner workings of that gospel message by which they are saved. And in order to bring them to the realization of that, Paul is going to set up a series of theological dominoes. Who played with dominoes as a little child? You know, you set them up in a line, and when you knock one over, what happens? The whole line goes over. And that's what Paul is doing. He's setting up little truths right next to each other and saying, if you knock this one over, he's going to show how everyone down the line gets knocked over. And he's going to do this domino game twice with them. First, in verses 13 to 15, he's going to show them that denying the resurrection of the dead ultimately knocks down the dominoes and ends up leading to empty preaching. And the second time he plays the game with them is in verses 16 to 18, where he shows that denying the resurrection of the dead leads to a futile faith. So let's, let's look at the first set of dominoes in verses 13 to 15 where we see that no resurrection makes preaching empty. No resurrection makes preaching empty. As I mentioned last week, these problem individuals in the Corinthian congregation, they were not, apparently, they were not denying Christ's resurrection. They were just denying the resurrection in general. Apparently, they affirmed that, yes, Jesus rose from the dead, but they denied that Christ's people could expect to be raised from the dead. And Paul says here in verse 13 that such a position is logically indefensible, that it makes no sense, that the one statement cancels out the other. You can't believe both things at the same time. Verse 13, he says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You cannot, at the same time, deny that there's a resurrection of the dead and affirm that Christ rose from the dead. Why not? Because Jesus was not only God, he was also what? Man. And we saw last week that he really died. He died. He was a man and he died. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ, who was a dead man on Good Friday, could not be raised. That's just the way it is. So if you deny that the dead are raised, the first domino that gets knocked over 
is a really big one because it means that not even Christ has been raised. And what does that do? That wipes out the gospel. Because we saw last week there are two essential components to the gospel. One, Jesus died for our sins. And two, Jesus was raised from the dead on the third day. This false teaching wipes out half of the gospel and leaves us with no gospel. Paul doesn't stop there. He keeps showing them which dominoes fall. Verse 14, Paul says, And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. If Jesus has not risen from the dead, what does that say about the apostles' preaching? Including Paul's. It says that it's vain. It's empty. There's no basis in reality for it. It's just empty words. It's some fantasy that they are talking about. It's nonsense. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11 because I want you to see the lengths to which Paul went to bring this message to lost souls. I want you to see what, how high the stakes are for Paul if there's no resurrection. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23, he's comparing himself in this passage, this chapter, to false apostles who have crept into the Corinthian congregation and are trying to, to woo them away from the gospel. Verse 23, Paul says, Are they, speaking of those false apostles, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane, I more so, in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. If Christ has not been raised, then that means Paul went through all of that for nothing. It was just a giant waste of time. Back in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 14, if the dead are not raised, Paul says, not only is the preaching of the apostles vain, but what else is vain? Your faith says your faith also is vain, empty. The Corinthians had believed the message that Paul preached to them. Well, if Paul's preaching was just empty words, then that means that the Corinthians' faith is just what? An empty faith. They swallowed a fairy tale. Their lives had been turned upside down by the gospel. That's what the gospel does to every true believer. It turns your life upside down, and it had been no less the case with the Corinthians, but it was turned upside down by something that wasn't even true. 
if the dead are not raised. Paul continues in verse 15 to say, Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if, in fact, the dead are not raised. Back in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, verse 1, Paul claimed this about himself. He said, introducing himself, Paul, called as an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God. That's what Paul claimed about himself. And that's what all the apostles claimed, that they were sent by God to deliver this message of Christ. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ was not raised. And if Christ was not raised, then the apostles' claim of being witnesses for God is what? It's a lie. If the dead are not raised, then Paul and the other apostles are false witnesses. They're liars. They're false prophets. They're worthy of death. They have put words in God's mouth and said things that he did not send them to say. That's what's at stake regarding this doctrine of there being no resurrection of the dead. Just in case the Corinthians have missed his point, Paul sets up the dominoes again in verses 16 to 18, and he knocks that first one over, that there's no resurrection of the dead, and he lets it play out for the Corinthians what that would mean. Verse 16, Paul basically repeats what he said in verse 13. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. In verses 17 through 18, Paul shows them some more consequences that would follow from Christ not being raised from the dead. What does he say in verse 17? He says, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. As believers, we expect our faith to result in something. We expect that us trusting in Jesus Christ will have a positive outcome, don't we? That's why we trust him, because he presents himself as a savior, as God, mighty to save. That's why we trust him. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, because the apostle Peter speaks about this. He speaks of faith having a result, faith having an outcome. 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm reading verses 3 through 9 here. 1 Peter 1, verse 3. Peter writes, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Right there we see that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the foundation of our new life in him. Why did, why did God cause us to be born again? Verse 4, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, 
Verse 7, so that the proof of your faith or the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result, to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. Verse 9 says that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. And verse 7 said that genuine faith results in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. That is our hope as believers. And it is a hope that is anchored to nothing else but what verse 3 said, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. If that anchor fails to hold, then our faith will not have that outcome. It will not. It is all dependent upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Turn with me back to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. In this chapter, Paul is proving Martin Luther's favorite doctrine, the doctrine of justification by faith. Paul is showing why this is how God's people have always been justified, by faith. And Paul in this chapter is using Abraham as the ultimate example of one who is justified by faith rather than works. When Abraham was an old man and his wife was past childbearing years and they had no children, God promised Abraham that he would have descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore and that he would have those descendants through Sarah, his barren wife. Look at verse 19. It picks up on that. This is the response of Abraham to that unbelievable promise from God. Without becoming weak in faith, he, Abraham, contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet, with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Therefore, it, meaning Abraham's faith, it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, not for his sake only was it written that it was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. Verse 25 He, speaking of Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. You see, the outcome of our faith rests upon the gospel. And in verse 25, we see those two essential components of the gospel. First, Jesus being delivered over for our sins. And second, Jesus being raised. And raised because of what? Our justification. Our justification by faith is directly tied to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Now, we know how the death of Jesus contributes to our salvation, because we talk about it all the time. Jesus died in the place of sinners, taking their wrath upon himself so that we could be rescued from that wrath. But we don't often think about how the resurrection of Jesus contributes to our salvation. And just to meditate on that and to think through, how does the resurrection of Christ impact my salvation? If you're still in Romans, look at chapter 1 and verse 2 through 4. Romans 1, let me back up to verse 1. That says, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. And what is this gospel concerning? Concerning his son, verse 3, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord. That verse tells us that in the resurrection, God was declaring his Son to be the Son of God. God was declaring something about Jesus Christ in the resurrection. Now turn with me to 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. We read this in our call to worship. 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, Paul says, By common confession, great is the mystery of godliness. Speaking of Jesus, he who was revealed in the flesh was vindicated or was justified in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That phrase that Jesus was vindicated or justified in the Spirit is likely a reference to his resurrection. When God the Father raised Jesus from the dead, that was the Father declaring his Son to be what he had proven himself to be, which was what? Righteous, righteous. The Jews thought that they had crucified what kind of a man? A wicked man a blaspheming man. But the resurrection vindicated Jesus. The resurrection showed, declared that Jesus was actually righteous. He was not a blasphemer. He was righteous. If Jesus had not been raised from the dead, we would have no evidence that Jesus was anything other than what his enemies had pronounced him to be. In fact, we would have evidence that Jesus was what his enemies accused him of being if Jesus was not raised from the dead. Why do I say that? What did Jesus repeatedly claim about himself? He told his disciples that he was going to be crucified and on the third day he would what? He would be raised from the dead. And in John chapter 11, what did Jesus say about himself to Martha as her brother was lying dead and rotting in a tomb? Jesus said, I am the resurrection, and the life. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, he would be shown to be what? A liar, not who he said he was. Not only that, but Jesus' sacrifice would have been shown to be ineffective. It would not have counted for us because a sinner cannot pay the penalty for other sinners because that sinner has to pay his own penalty. 
It is the resurrection that declares Christ's sacrifice to have been enough to save us forever. Hopefully I'm not telling you anything new, but you and I are not righteous in and of ourselves. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then he also was not righteous. And we have no one whose righteousness can be credited to our account, and we are still lost. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, then we cannot be justified because we don't have a righteous one to stand in our place. But because Jesus did rise from the dead, demonstrating that he is righteous, we do have someone whose righteousness can be credited to our account. In the resurrection, Jesus was declared to be what he is, righteous, so that through faith in him, we who are unrighteous can be declared to be what we are not, righteous. Through faith, we are united to Jesus Christ. So in his resurrection and God declaring Jesus to be who he actually is, righteous, we being united to Jesus can be declared to be righteous even though we are not righteous. You see, our justification is intimately connected with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That is why back in 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul says that if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless or fruitless. It will not have the outcome that you are expecting. It will not result in what you hope. At the end of verse 17, Paul adds, you are still in your sins. If Christ did not rise, then his sacrifice was not acceptable to God. He was just a sinner like you. Therefore, you have no Savior if Jesus did not rise from the dead. Verse 18, Paul continues. He says, Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The word that Paul uses for perish is a strong one. It is the word apalumi. It shares the same root word with the name apalion that we find in Revelation 9, verse 11. And that name means destroyer. Paul says that if Christ was not raised, then those believers in Christ who died were what? Destroyed. Paul says that if the dead are not raised, then not even Jesus has been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, then those poor souls who believed in Jesus when they died, instead of waking up in heaven, they woke up in hell. They trusted in a Savior who could not save them if Jesus did not rise from the dead. This is why the doctrine of the resurrection is so important. Hopefully you can see that like the doctrine of justification, the doctrine of resurrection is also a doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. You and I cannot afford to believe in a half gospel. Half a gospel is not a gospel at all. A gospel without a resurrection is not the gospel. And I'm belaboring this point because there are many people today who call themselves Christians, but who do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. 
And they do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead because they are too, quote-unquote, enlightened to believe in such a thing. Yes, they believe Jesus was a good teacher and that he set a good example for how to try to reform society. And they'll gather together in churches and they'll, you know, preach uh, little things that Jesus said about feeding the poor. But they do not believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We have to understand that such people are not Christians. They are not Christians. They are still dead in their sins, and they are still headed for hell, which means that if one of them is your friend, and they say, I'm a Christian just like you, I just don't believe that tomb is empty, we cannot sit on our hands and think that we're going to see them in heaven when we die. We're not going to see them, which is why you need to proclaim to them the whole gospel that Jesus died for our sins and he rose from the dead. And unless you, my friend, believe in a risen Savior, you are going to die in your sins. And I don't want that for you. That leads us to the conclusion of the matter in verse 19. The conclusion. Paul says, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. Christians, I'm going to build up to my explanation of this statement by Paul. Christians are to be the most joyful people on the planet. Why is that? Why are Christians to be the most joyful people on the planet? It's because Christians have ceased trying to find fulfillment in this world. They've found it somewhere else. This world is like a desert, and the unbeliever sees many possible places of respite, many oases that they could go to to find a cool drink of water to satisfy their soul. And they spend their lives chasing after this oasis and this oasis. But when they get there, they find that it's nothing but a mirage. And so they move on to the next one. The unbeliever spends his whole life running from one thing to the next, hoping to find that one thing that will fill his heart up. Maybe friends will fill that hole in my heart. Nope. Well, maybe this job will fill that hole in my heart. Nope. Well, maybe that new toy will do it. That didn't work. Maybe this spouse will fill my hole in my heart. That didn't work either. Maybe kids. Maybe kids will fill that empty space in my heart. No. Well, maybe drugs and alcohol will do it. And on and on it goes until the unbeliever one day is lying on his back in a hospital bed and he's looking back on decades of disappointment, never finding the only thing that could have filled his soul for sure. But the Christian, on the other hand, has found that one thing, or rather that one person. The Christian has found the one for whom he was created, the one who fills his life with purpose, the only one worth living for and dying for. The Christian has found forgiveness of his sins, eternal life, inexpressible joy, never-ending peace. 
Maybe he doesn't express it all the time. Maybe he doesn't feel it all the time. But he has the source of that constantly available to him if he will only look to him enough to experience that. And he's found it in this one person, Jesus Christ. And because the Christian is satisfied in Jesus Christ, that Christian can be satisfied in his job, even if it's a dead-end job. And that Christian can be satisfied in his marriage, even if his spouse leaves much to be desired. And that Christian can be satisfied in his kids because his heart has already been filled with who? With Christ. And when trial and persecution comes, the Christian can still have joy because he knows that God is only using that in his life to make him more like his Savior and to cause him to love his Savior more. And if his life gets snuffed out, it only means that he will get to be ushered into the one who is joy itself, Jesus Christ. You see, the Christian can experience joy where no one else can experience joy. But Paul says, if there is no resurrection, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then the Christian is of all men most to be pitied. Why is that? Well, you know the disappointment an unbeliever feels when he goes after something and he gets that something and he discovers, this this is not what I thought it was going to be. Deion Sanders, a famous football player, he thought that when he won the Super Bowl, that was going to make him set for life. But he won it and he was left saying, is that it? When a true Christian, on the other hand, believes that he has found in Christ the great purpose of life, that Christian gives up everything to follow Jesus Christ. To the Christian, Jesus is like a treasure hidden in a field that that person stumbles on and over joy of what he's found, he sells everything he's got so that he can buy that field and have that treasure. Or Jesus is like a pearl of great price that a merchant stumbles upon in the marketplace and because he sees that that pearl is worth far above and beyond all that he has already owned combined, he sells all that he has so that he can have that pearl. That was Paul's experience in Philippians chapter 3. Let me read that to you. Philippians 3 verses 7 through 11. In Jesus Paul had found that treasure hidden in the field, that pearl of great price. He said, But whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God upon faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death in order that what? That I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Imagine the disappointment that Paul or any true believer would face if Jesus has not been raised from the dead. 
to have the only ground for your joy stripped away from you, to find yourself still enslaved to sin and headed for hell when you thought you were forgiven and set free, to find yourself suffering for the name of Jesus for nothing when you thought reward was being stored up for you in heaven and you thought that your God was pleased with you for Christ's sake and you thought that Christ was worthy to suffer for. But he's not raised, so it turns out he wasn't. What could be more pitiable, more pathetic? What a greater disappointment than that. Do you see how all of Christianity hangs upon the reality of the resurrection of the dead? What we believe matters. Doctrine matters. Let's never kid ourselves that it does not matter. You need to know what you believe and why you believe it. Now, thankfully, we will never, if you are trusting in Christ this morning, you will never experience the disappointment that Paul envisions here because the tomb is empty and Jesus Christ is alive. Because he has died for our sins and rose from the dead, if we have turned from our sins and trusted in him to be our Savior and our Lord, then we are forgiven. We are set free from sin to serve our Maker. We have been given the gift of eternal life. And though we will suffer more in this life than other men because of our faith in Christ, it will all be worth it because, in the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18, our momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory, far beyond all comparison, while we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Because Christ lives forever, we who are trusting in him will live forever. Romans 10:11 says this, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. If you trust in Jesus Christ, you will not be disappointed. Let's pray.